Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. This is Season 3 of the Haunted UK Podcast, and we're going to be picking up where Season 2 left off. We'll be continuing our journey to tell stories of ghosts, poltergeists, unsolved disappearances, mysterious creatures, haunted locations, UFO encounters, and much more. So without any further delays, let's get started. Before we carry on, I'd just like to give a shout out to some amazing people who've donated to the show via coffee. They are Damien Sullivan, Laura and John Kavanagh, Georgina Luckman and Loppy Loves. Thank you so much for your donations and your support. If you'd like to donate to the show, details will be coming up soon. But for now, let's get back to this episode. On Papoose Dry Lake Bed, a number of miles from the main Area 51 complex, allegedly lies a research and storage facility known as S4. It's at this highly classified above-top-secret facility that a man named Bob Lazar not only witnessed strange aircraft, but also worked on their systems and subsystems, trying to understand and recreate what was in front of him. This process, known as back or reverse engineering, is common between military superpowers when one comes into possession of an item of technology which belongs to another. But what if that technology didn't belong to a superpower on Earth? What if it came from somewhere else? This is episode 25 of the Haunted UK podcast, and in this second episode in the Area 51 and Bob Lazar miniseries, we're going to look into who Bob Lazar is and what he saw.
Bob Lazar, born Robert Scott Lazar, was born on the 26th of January 1959. After a few years settled in Coral Gables, Florida, his family decided to relocate to New York, moving into a house next door to a man named Eugene Gluharev. Eugene was a rocket engineer and designer, and he and Bob became friends very quickly due to their shared interest of rocket construction and technology. Bob seemed to like to draw attention to himself and his achievements, like when he attached one of Eugene's small rocket engines to a bicycle that he used to ride around the streets. This would attract the attention of local newspapers who wrote pieces about Bob and his rocket-propelled bike. He graduated in the fall of 1976 in the bottom third of his class, then went on to take a handful of electronics courses at Pierce Junior College in California where he moved to after graduating. It's around this time that Bob met his first wife, Carol. He was also allegedly working for a company called Farchild Industries as an electronics engineer, but these details are a little sketchy. Bob and Carol married and then moved to Los Alamos, where he continued to use Eugene's rocket engines to power more bikes and also a car. Again, this was always creating attention, some of which was reported in local newspapers. Now again, there are conflicting reports as to what Bob was up to when he moved to Los Alamos, but it seems that he was working as a radiation health monitor technician for a company called Kirk Mayer. At some point around this time, 1984, he borrowed money from his mother to buy a brothel in Reno, Nevada, which he ran with his wife until it had to close in 1985. It seemed that he'd borrowed money from many different channels, such as Los Alamos Bank, Security Pacific Finance Corporation, and even his own father, and none of it was ever paid back. It's here that his marriage breaks down and Carol decides to leave Los Alamos and set up home in Las Vegas. She starts up her own photo processing company, while back in Los Alamos, Bob tries to marry a woman named Tracy Ann Merck, but can't due to the fact that he's still legally married to Carol. Now we cannot forget that through all this going on, Bob Lazar claims to have graduated with a master's degree of science in physics at none other than MIT in 1982, and also a master's degree of science in electronic technology at Caltech in 1985, two of the most well-known educational institutes in the world. A while after the collapse of the brothel, Bob's ex-wife tragically committed suicide by inhaling exhaust fumes from her car. This meant that Bob inherited her business and her house, which he quickly moved into. However, Lazar's bad judgment within both his business and his finances struck again in 1986, when he lost the photo processing business that his ex-wife had started in a voluntary liquidation motion. Bob continued to work, but financial collapse reared its head again when he could no longer afford to keep up repayments for the house which, again, he inherited from his ex-wife. At a loss, and now quickly running out of options, Bob and his wife Tracy moved to Las Vegas, where Bob had a few friends. But Tracy decided to buy her own house and distance herself from him. 
Bob would continue to work as a self-employed photo processor until in November 1988, he replied to a job interview which, according to Lazar's account, was being conducted at a facility at Las Vegas's McCarran Airport, belonging to a company called EG&G. Upon his arrival for the interview, he soon realized that it wasn't EG&G that he'd be working for. It was the United States Department of Naval Intelligence. But let's quickly go back to EG&G. It's important to remember details such as these when making your own decision regarding the validity of Bob Lazar's claims. Before we carry on with this episode, I'd just like to tell you about the Haunted UK Podcast's coffee account. If you love the show and want to help out that little bit more, then get yourself over to coffee, that's K-O-F-I, and search for the Haunted UK Podcast, and for just a subscription of £3 per month, you'll get a shout-out in an episode of the main show, chances to get your hands on free Haunted UK Podcast merchandise, and you'll also soon be in line for bonus content bite-size episodes. Getting to a target of at least 30 subscribers is the aim, and I know that with your help, it's easily achievable. And it's literally just the price of buying one coffee per month. If you'd rather not subscribe, then you can simply make a one-off donation. Every little bit helps. So if you want to help the podcast grow to the next level, then pop over to Coffee and make your donation. Coffee, why not buy us one? Now, let's get back to the episode. EG&G were one of the most important contractors as far as military technology and systems development was concerned. They also handled the Janet flights to and from Area 51. In 2002, the company was bought up by another military technology contractor giant, URS Corporation, but they retained the EG&G branding until 2014, when URS was sold to AECOM, who then sold it again to equity firms, American Securities and Lindsey Goldberg in a deal worth a staggering $2.4 billion. The new company continued where EG&G, URS and AECOM left off under the new name of Amentum. All went quiet for a short while, then a second interview was organised. Same location, same building, same people. But this time, it was for a different position. Exotic Propulsion System Back Engineering. He wasn't told where he'd be working if he got the job. All they did say was that it would be at a secure and remote location. In a matter of just two weeks, Bob was contacted by representatives of the United States Department of Naval Intelligence to let him know that he'd got the job and that he would be on call for whenever he was needed. Bob continued to work as a photo processor in the days that he wasn't on call, but when he was contacted, he had to follow ultra-strict instructions. He was made to sign the Official Secrets Act, as well as a document directly sent with President Ronald Reagan's signature on that essentially reversed his constitutional rights. So if he screwed up, he was fully accountable, and there was nothing he could do about it. When Bob got his first call, he was told to go to the EG&G terminal at McCarran Airport, where he would be instructed from there. He boarded a Janet flight and a short time later landed at the Groom Lake complex. Things were now getting real. 
Lazar said that the first few times that he was at the facility, it didn't really amount to much at all. The group of workers that he was part of were assembled and put onto a bus with blacked out windows. This travelled approximately 15 miles to a remote part of the Groom Lake site, which Lazar would later learn was called S4. He immediately saw that all of the infrastructure of S4 was built into the side of the mountains that flanked the area. There were nine hangar doors which were coloured and textured to match the side of the mountain, and this was briefly explained that this was done so that nothing could be seen from satellite photos. Secrecy was totally paramount, and this would become more and more apparent the longer that Lazar worked at S4. Paperwork, security clearances, and briefings in the shape of folders full of documents took up the majority of the first few visits, with Lazar not knowing what was truth and what was fiction. He remembers that one briefing went into detail of an advanced propulsion system which was being reverse-engineered, while another one went into detail that religion in its entirety was a lie. There was no god, and the human race had been altered genetically a number of times by a far more advanced race of beings. Bob Lazar put things like this down to the military closely monitoring what a person's reaction would be like. Would a huge revelation like this psychologically affect a person who was highly involved with handling technologies which were alien in origin? After all of this red tape was dealt with and out of the way, Lazar would come into direct contact with what he would be working on. On this visit, he said that the bus was driven into a different entrance, which led straight into one of the hangars. As Bob and his co-workers got off the bus, they were dumbfounded by the sight that sat before them. Lazar described it as your typical flying saucer, taking up most of the hangar space and sitting on supporting legs. But all of the other hangars and their separating doors were closed, so at that moment, nobody had any idea what else was being stored in the facility. Lazar described security guards slowly leading them past the disc, and he reached out and ran his hand along the side of it, and was immediately reprimanded for his actions by security. He was told to simply look forward, and follow the rest of his co-workers to their destination. He said that the craft was cold to touch, so he assumed that it was some type of metal. As he passed the disc, he noticed that a hatch was open and a small American flag sticker was on it, which made him chuckle to himself. This all made sense to him now. There were no UFOs at all. Every single sighting was down to these highly advanced aircraft which the military had been developing in secret and test flying. That was until his next briefing. The documents which were put in front of him to study and digest described the craft as being extraterrestrial and not of this Earth. It also stated that both the race of beings and the craft were from the Zeta Reticuli star system, and the propulsion systems used to move this object through space were based on anti-gravity reactors. Again, Bob was asking himself if all of this was true, or was it more attempts to further test his mental state when a huge amount of potentially life-changing information was dropped on him? Not long after this, he was taken to the area where he would be working and introduced to his colleague Barry, who had worked at the facility for quite a while. 
workers were split up into groups and given a specific area of the craft systems to work on, meaning that not one person actually knew the full project's details. Lazar described this as being typical of most highly classified projects controlled by the military. It helps to keep security leaks to a minimum. The main area of the project which Barry and Lazar would work on was the gravity reactor amplifiers and their ability to reverse engineer these components using materials which were available on Earth. Bob recalls seeing one of the gravity amplifiers and watching it start up. The unit was roughly the size of a basketball, and when the upper hemisphere of the reactor was put into place, the unit would begin to generate gravity. Lazar says that you could physically see the distortion created by the effects of the magnetic field generated by the gravitational force from the reactor. At one point, Barry asked Lazar to try and touch the surface of the reactor, but when he tried, his hand was physically pushed away by the forces emitted from it, a little like the opposing poles of a magnet. It was at this moment that Bob realized that the briefing notes were true. In his opinion, the human race had no way of developing technologies such as these. They were simply too far advanced, and our current understanding of physics just didn't go far enough to explain the theory behind such systems. Before we carry on, here's a promo for a brilliant podcast called Persons Unknown. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. My name is John. I'm based in Wales and cover cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. Each episode tells the story of a cold case from the original timeline right through to recent developments. The content is based on thorough research and all the evidence is presented in a clear and engaging way. There's no banter, but a respectful narration of what happened and any theories. A new episode is released every other Monday, with occasional bonus episodes. There are already plenty of episodes to binge. Find Persons Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, it's back to the show. While testing the reactor with his lab partner, he noticed that there was no sign of any kind of wiring or circuitry at all. It seemed that whatever the components were inside, they had to be together to make the reactor work. Bob commented that the sheer energy that this reactor was generating was astonishing, as to generate gravity, you need something with a huge amount of mass. But this was the size of a basketball. Before Lazar had even become involved in the project, other workers had apparently identified that this reactor was running via a fuel element, which they identified as Element 115, which didn't even exist on our periodic table until around 2004. Lazar said that this was an extremely heavy element, and it was somehow used to power the reactor via a small particle accelerator, which was at the base of the unit. The working timetable was never regimented. It was always random, and you were expected to drop everything and be available to travel from McCarran Airport within an allotted time schedule. Obviously, this would play havoc with Bob's relationships as he couldn't tell anyone where he was going or what he was doing. 
After taking the usual Janet flight and then the bus to the S4 facility, Bob was permitted to actually go inside the flying disc, which he had been calling the sport model. He decided to make notes of the layout of the gravity amplifiers in case this was important to their operation. While inside the craft, Lazar said that there was literally an otherworldly feeling. Everything had a smooth surface with absolutely no hard corners or edges to anything. He described it as if the whole craft and its interior had been injection molded. He also noticed that there were a number of seats which were too small for an average-sized adult human being to sit in. So what race of being did sit in these seats? And were they somewhere in Area 51? Whilst inside the craft, Lazar said that one of the most impressive things that he ever witnessed was when the entire side section of the craft became transparent, letting him see the hangar outside and the engineers working whatever they had been tasked to do. After a short time, the area became solid again, blocking the view to the outside world. On another occasion, Lazar said that he witnessed the full extent of the amount of extraterrestrial vehicles being stored in the S4 facility. He said that every separating hangar door was open, revealing a total of nine flying discs, all varying in size and shape, with one particular one resting on its side with some sort of missile piercing its edge. It was quite clear to Bob that the sport model was definitely an extraterrestrial vehicle. But what about the eight others that were sitting in their own respective hangars? Did each one of them have their own individual teams of scientists and engineers? This wasn't something that Lazar had any knowledge of, and as he was constantly reminded, never ask questions. Whilst working in his designated lab with his colleague Barry, their supervisor, Dennis Miriani, invited them out to the dry lake bed outside of hangar number one. When they arrived, they found that the sport model disc was sat on the lake bed and they were informed that a short-duration test flight was about to commence. Bob stood there, absolutely awestruck, as he watched this approximately 60-foot diameter disc take off, hover around for a while, move left and right, and then land again all completely silently. The only sound came when the craft began to take off, and Bob described this as a quiet hissing noise which then went silent. Lazar also noticed a slight bluish coronal discharge coming from the base of the craft, again only on takeoff. This also disappeared when the disc had gained altitude. Lazar commented that this was like watching a house take off and float around silently, enforcing the fact that the sheer amount of energy needed to accomplish this feat was huge, way beyond our current technological capabilities. Bob now knew the test flight timetables of the disc and, behind the scenes, decided to do something that was unthinkable as far as the Official Secrets Act was concerned. Bob was becoming more and more disillusioned with the secrecy of the whole project, commenting that he felt that the human race should be told that contact had already been made and that the military were test-flying these alien aircraft on US soil. It was clear to Lazar that if the US military could somehow weaponize this technology, it would make them almost untouchable. 
Being able to cover huge distances to attack an enemy, then return in a matter of seconds, was a weapon that any military superpower would relish having in their arsenal. Security was also becoming more and more tighter on the complex. And Bob felt that himself and his work colleagues no longer had the freedom to work in a positive manner that would encourage progression. Instead, he felt that the oppressive atmosphere was doing the complete opposite, with new discoveries being hampered and slowed down by the strangling effect which was being imposed by base security. In February 1989, he decided to talk to his close friend Gene Huff about his work, but at first didn't delve too much into it. Gene wasn't going to push Bob into divulging sensitive information as he knew the risks, but at the same time he was understandably intrigued and wanted to learn more. Little by little, Bob began to open up more to Gene about his experiences and Gene also began to investigate the whole UFO phenomena by trying to read as much as possible. The strange working hours and need for secrecy also began to interfere with Bob Lazar's life. When he took the job at S4, he not only signed the Official Secrets Act and the document that gave up his constitutional rights, but also gave permission to the military to monitor his phone conversations at home. What Bob didn't realise was that all around this time period, his wife was having an affair, and the military knew all about it. According to Lazar, this was when security and his superiors began to pay much more attention to what he was doing at the facility. If the affair came out, would the stress, pressure and anguish cause Bob to compromise the whole project? Before we carry on, here's another promo for a great podcast called The Nightcap. Greetings, friends. Do you have a taste for the unknown? Are your days plagued with thoughts of the strange and morbid? Has your bloodlust for knowledge of the most sadistic killers that has ever walked the earth ever been satisfied? If not, then I'm here to help. Welcome to the Nightcap, where nothing is taboo and the topics are always fresh. Join me by the fire on the first of every month for tales of terror and stories of the sadistic. Learn why your neighbor might be hiding a horrible secret, or if that conspiracy theory you thought was false turned out to be real. Whatever your dark desire, I have what you need. You can find me on Spotify, Radio Public, and Anchor, with more ways to listen coming soon. Without further ado, be safe, stay curious, and now, back to your program. Now, it's back to the show. It was around a month later when Bob suggested to Gene that he take him to see one of the discs undergoing a test flight at S4. Obviously, Gene agreed, so along with himself, Bob, Bob's wife, and a man named John Lear, who we'll come back to later, they all went out to the location of the S4 facility. Bob's knowledge of the test flight timetable meant that they travelled out to the desert under the cover of darkness on a Wednesday evening. Wednesdays were the preferred day of the week to perform any tests of the sport model UFO because, as it was explained to Bob by Dennis Miriani, there was statistically less traffic in the whole area 
meaning less chances of a member of the general public seeing anything suspicious. The group climbed a large hill to get to a good vantage point and then sat waiting. Almost upon cue, an extremely bright light in the distance began to climb into the air with no noise whatsoever. The group watched the object as it gained more altitude and then began performing manoeuvres which no man-made aircraft would be able to achieve. Incredible acceleration followed by almost 90 degree turns, then sudden stops. Bob and Jean quickly grabbed their video camera and began filming. The object continued to dart around the night sky, and while the video footage wasn't brilliant by any means, it did show that there was definitely an object moving around over Papoose Dry Lake Bed. At one point, the object begins to shine so bright that Bob, his wife Jean and John Lear all thought that it was going to explode. Jean Huff described it as being something on the cusp of exploding but being able to stay at that state. The object also began to move towards them on the hill which caused some concern, especially from Bob, as he thought that their position had been discovered. But it soon began to move back towards the lake bed and no security personnel could be seen or heard in the distance. Not wanting to push their luck anymore, the group decided to call it a night and make their way down the hill and back to their vehicle. Had Bob finally gone some way to proving that the American military was test-flying extraterrestrial aircraft out in the desert at this top-secret base? As Lazar continued to work at S4, strange things began to happen with his timetable. He found that he wasn't being asked to work as many hours as usual, and the time between shifts was becoming longer and longer. He also began to notice that he was being followed wherever he went. Had his superiors discovered that he'd taken people out to witness a test flight? Becoming more and more paranoid, he organized another visit out to the test site with his wife and friends. Again, they witnessed an aircraft perform flight maneuvers so amazing that it seemed inconceivable that our current technology could produce anything like this. Lazar was becoming a little sloppy now, and their third visit out to their vantage point would prove their last. Lazar recalls that after watching another high-performance test flight, himself and Gene Huff were down at the base of the hill with their vehicle when they began to have a conversation. Now, Bob says that apart from the stars and a few, if any, distant lights from the base, it really is pitch black out in the desert. While they were standing there talking, they noticed a green light very close to them, moving further towards them. It then dropped to the floor and rolled over. It was the small screen of a night vision scope. Before either Bob or Jean could react, bright lights suddenly illuminated and focused on them. All the time that they had been on the hill watching the test flight, military security personnel had been watching and following them. Jean Huff was immediately sent away in the vehicle that they had arrived in, and Bob was escorted to a security vehicle and then taken to Indian Springs Air Force Base to be reprimanded. Whilst this started off at a mild pace, with high-ranking military officers, heads of security and his supervisor Dennis Mariani asking the usual questions, it soon began to get very serious. 
they decided to break the news to Bob that his wife had been having an affair all of this time. And they had proof. They placed transcripts of all the telephone conversations that Bob's wife and the man she was seeing behind his back on a table for him to read. But they also made the point of reading them out to him to enforce the fact that if they could find out about this, they could find out about anything. They simply couldn't believe that an employee, not only working at a top-secret military installation, but also working on highly sensitive, ultra-top-secret technologies, could be stupid enough to risk everything to show his friends a test flight. He'd broken every single rule that had been asked of him to abide by, and this was now extremely serious. Military and security representatives threatened not only his life, but also the lives of his family and friends, if he even dared to return to the area, or if anyone including him divulged any information relating to the projects he had been working on. His contract of employment was to be terminated immediately, and he would be released to return home and await further disciplinary action. Understandably, Bob was terrified, but he was also now faced with the crushing reality that his wife had been seeing another man for months, and there was undeniable evidence. As time went on, and with no contact from anyone from Area 51 or S4, Bob grew more and more paranoid, so decided to get in touch with the only journalist in Las Vegas that he knew of, George Knapp. Bob's thinking behind this was that if he could at least get his story out there into the public domain but remain anonymous, it may safeguard his life and the lives of the people who were with him over the course of those illegal test flight visits. It would also expose some of what was really going on over at Area 51, including the fact that the human race had apparently already been in contact with an extraterrestrial race and had obtained vehicles which operated using technologies which we still couldn't recreate. It also begged the question that if the United States had these vehicles, who else had them? Russia? Germany? China? Was this a geopolitical race to weaponize these highly advanced craft and their systems? Whilst mulling over his options with George Knapp, Bob began to feel that his former employees were still keeping tabs on him. His phone was still bugged, so he had to be extremely careful who he called and what he spoke about. Familiar-looking cars would follow him wherever he went, whether if that was to get groceries or to go to the movies. His life was beginning to close in around him, and it would soon become even worse. When speaking to George Knapp and retelling his story, Bob was surprised to find George so calm. George assured Bob that he would do all he could to make the interview as comfortable as possible, and to make sure that his identity was not given away. After all, let's not forget the magnitude of the topic we're talking about here undeniable proof of the existence of extraterrestrial beings from another world and their technology. Any country's military in the world would do its utmost to protect sensitive information, especially information of this kind. The sheer value of what the US Air Force allegedly had in its possession was literally priceless. Alien craft, alien technology, and maybe alien beings. Reverse engineering was just the start. 
So on the 14th of May, 1985, Bob Lazar gave his first interview to George Knapp on KLAS News. He requested that he appeared in silhouette and that his name be changed to Dennis. Apparently, a cheeky dig at his supervisor, Dennis Miriani. Now, as we've already pointed out, none of this can be proven as being 100% accurate, as there is nobody who came forward with evidence which supports all of these claims. So, was all of this lies or a plot by the US military to use Bob Lazar as a patsy to spread false information and claims of alien technology being in the hands of the Air Force? Well, you'll have to join us for our final episode of this three-part mini-series where we'll find out what happened after the interviews with George Knapp. We'll also go into the arguments from the skeptics regarding Bob Lazar's credibility and also some of the apparently huge plot holes in his story. We'll then give you our final verdict on whether Lazar and his experiences actually took place. But before we get to that episode, be sure to join us in two weeks' time for the stories of two families and the haunted houses that they lived in. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rising rapidly, and that's all down to you. So, huge thanks to you all. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a third season. Huge thanks to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is a request to all you listeners out there again. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on Season 3's Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. 
This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.